Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Gazzarioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. Timberwolf. From inside the centre square. time of day everybody i am ethan castle i am benjamin castle this is episode 94 of americans watching the footy and benjamin's kind of got a sore throat so it should be easier for you to tell us apart we're here in south san francisco california you know what i could just i could just really lean into this deep voice if i wanted to tonight i mean we already did the asmr but i think we could have some fun with this max king isn't close enough to a return yet for asmr to happen again All right, well, I want to open up this week's episode with two questions. First off, is it Laurel or Yanny? It's Laurel. Second, is it Laurel or Yanny or Yanny or Laurel? Because there's a Wikipedia article for it, and on the Wikipedia article it said Yanny or Laurel, but I remember most people saying it as Laurel or Yanny, and more importantly, like if there's nothing deciding it, I think you kind of go by alphabetical order is my general principle. So I'm a big believer that it's Laurel or Yanny. I just say Laurel first because that's what I hear. Also, it was black and blue. When was all this happening? How many years ago? I think about five. Laurel, Yanny, and the dress? No, the dress was like 2015 because I just found the Blake Griffin tweet where he goes, you know, like, enough about the dress, what color am I? Yanny or Laurel or Laurel or Yanny, May 2018. I thought it was longer ago than that. That's surprising. Now, I remember that being around the time that I graduated from high school the dress, that was 2015. Yeah, the, the Blake Griffin tweet was how I how I knew that. Great tweet, great Eric Andre show guest. He actually knew what he was doing on there. I think he actually watches. I don't know if he watches regularly, but he was, like, obviously prepared. Like, he's seen the show before, or at least seen clips from it. Or somebody warned him. Well, this is not Bird Up, the worst podcast on Spotify. I hope he does a Bird Up podcast. That would be cool. But, um... Yeah, that's really not what we are here for today. You man a bird. Today, we are here to talk about round eight, of course, which I really don't have like a general theme. I mean, I have a theme for the Sunday. Yeah, nobody can kick on Sunday except for Essendon. Everybody might check. I mean, Essendon, when it mattered, not really. But uh, for most of that game, they put themselves in position because they kicked. Well, anyway, that's that's all down the road. We're going to go in order. This is when we should have some sort of like super over-the-top annoying transition sound effect, like... And maybe something else in there, too? I don't know. Maybe, like, a... Maybe some, like, record scratch thing. Or... Like a radio-style bumper. Like, as overdone as the family guy weenie in the butt ones, hopefully. Cool podcast on the footy. Ethan and Benjamin Castle. Only available on a bunch of outlets. Anyway... Carlton 11-8-74, Brisbane 15-10-100 was your Friday night footy. 
Benjamin, I know you didn't get to see all of this game live, but it was a 32 to two third quarter that really turned this game and decided things, put Brisbane up 40. Thankfully, I was actually able to still watch a decent amount of it as I was beginning my shift at work. It was during halftime, really, that I was driving and a little bit of the start of the third quarter. I saw what I needed to see out of this game. The thing I noticed from the beginning was just turnovers. There were 154 turnovers in this game, and the Lions actually committed four more, 79 to Carlton 75, but they also punished giveaways a lot more. Just an insane stat here that I have a hard time believing is true still, even though it's on the AFL timeline for this game. Brisbane finished ahead 29 to 18 in four and a half intercepts at 85 to 48 in points scored from turnovers. The Lions created 15 points completely by themselves. 85 points from turnovers. They could have won off turnovers alone. Carlton have, you could argue, up to like five of the top 50 players, and yet they're just kind of freelancing. And, you know, at times we praised Michael Voss for really letting them play. That was last year. But also, like, there needs to be a sense of togetherness, even if you let the guys play a pretty loose system. And instead, it looks like a bunch of guys that are very talented, like, obviously... Footy is a good sport for them to play, but, like, they've never played in a team setting. They've just, like, got a bunch of individual skills. They're a bunch of unique individuals. Thanks, Bezel. They have yet to figure out how to make sure Harry McKay and Charlie Curnow don't go for the same marks in contests. I think back to that Corey Durden play with a minute left against Collinwood last year. Jeremy Howe intercepted that, right? I don't remember. I just remember it was a terrible kick and a bad decision to kick it in the first place. And I just saw, like, a bunch of plays like that. You had Ed Kernow kicking in between two guys at one point early in the game. And a bunch of stuff where Harry McKay is just like, what the hell are you doing? Guys getting chased down for holding the ball that should have never happened. The frustration is palpable. It, it shouldn't be happening. On the other hand, Brisbane looked like the flag contender I thought they could be. Because this is the first time we've really seen like the fully operational... Brisbane forward line in all its glory. Four goals each from Charlie Cameron and Zach Bailey were a big part of that. Bailey did not start the year especially well, and he's getting going now, but think about this. You have Bailey, Cameron, Danaher, Gunston, Hipwood, McCarthy, all operating. That is terrifying. Like, there is no weak link there. And McCarthy could go a bit further back at times. I noted some of the play that he had in a bit more of a center line role against North in Mount Barker, and I was thinking he'd be able to build off that. The potential's still there for that. Uh, even with Cam Raynard racking up great totals. He did not have a particularly good game. He had a couple of turnovers that were an issue, but it was really not a problem. Bailey had been doing work starting scores, but hadn't been on the end of chains as much. He's, if I create a, you know, when I create a personal favorites 22, Bailey will be in there at half forward. The fucking how do you do fellow kids gif of him like hitting the gritty that they post after every one of his goals is annoying as shit. Still like the way he plays. Oh, I do too. Just annoying gift. Um, we're talking We're talking about all these forwards doing good work for Brisbane, but the biggest answer, I think, has been in the back. Jack Payne held Charlie Kern out a one early goal. He got, despite only having like, small possession numbers, he racked up nine marks and eight intercepts, and he got all three golden fist votes this week, and deservedly so. Bang. Sometimes being a good defender is not about your numbers, but just limiting someone else and shutting down a guy who put up nine a week earlier is 
pretty darn good because like for all the lack of awareness, Kernow seems to have his wits about him generally. In the air, especially, yeah. You look at Payne's last three weeks, actually. He excelled as a loose back in Canberra. He outdid Sam Taylor before Taylor got injured. Had nine intercepts and three contested marks then. He matched up well against Luke Jackson, getting eight intercepts in round seven. And then this past week, eight intercepts and three contested marks, putting a clamp on the reigning Cohen medalist. By the way, he's only 23, and he looks, what, 28? He looks like a big fucking dude. But I like how he played. This was an important statement for the Lions winning outside of the GABA. It was a good crowd. Best crowd these two clubs have ever had for a home and away game, over 45,000. Let's see if Carlton fans keep showing up if uh, this is what they're mailing in. Yeah, good win by the Lions. Frustrating game for Carlton where, like, a team with this much talent should not be doing this semi-frequently. I was saying a couple weeks ago how it's good that they're going to have a complete defensive group again. They couldn't handle the heat that the Lions were bringing in terms of not just marking, but pressure in general. Charlie Cameron can be one of their goal-kicking leaders, but he's also a pressure leader, and we saw that side of his game. I'd back him in for, for all Australian honors off combining both his offensive and defensive abilities, because they've both been there this year. Positives I will give Carlton are that Adam Jarrah had a pretty quality game, doing more and more good inside work, because thought of him as much more of an outside midfielder when he came to Carlton last year. Also, I like Jesse Mothlop. I've said that before. He just, he makes shit happen, and if they had, like, a loose offensive structure that allowed for him to kind of do some of the freelancing and other people play in more structured roles. I think you could do a lot there. I think the structure might be loose and just everybody defaults to bombing it into the 50, hoping the Coleman's can grab it. No, Voss needs to work the smalls into the game more, and it starts with Jesse Motlop. That kid's just a spark plug. Gotta get him involved. One other thing to note from this game, in the third quarter, Nick Newman and Locking Neal got into it. Just a bit of banter. So the man we call Hello ended up getting suspended one game for a punch he threw. I thought it was more of an elbow, but I think he kind of went left-right super quickly. Was he an amateur boxer in his youth like Jake Melksham? What if Nick Newman and Jake Melksham went to a high-end steakhouse together? One thing I will say, people debate over whether guys who get suspended should be eligible for Brownlow stuff. I think something like that, that's a non-football thing, that's kind of tough, whereas like, if a guy is a dangerous bump or, like, more than just a dump tackle that gets you one week, I totally get it. For that, I don't know, because, like, yes, it's super avoidable, but it's also not really a, a football thing. So it's, that's in gray area. I could, I'd have to think about that one for a while to come up with a real answer. The one other thing I'll note about, called another positive, Matt Kennedy needs to be in the 22, came on for Lewis Young in the fourth quarter and had a good full field role. His abilities shouldn't be doubted. And it seems like Voss doesn't really know where to put him at the moment. There's got there's got to be a spot for him in midfield or half forward. He's not a natural defender, and he's been shoehorned into that spot lately. Yes, Young's had a down game, and Kennedy's flexible, but he's another one that Voss should just allow to play his way. Get the smalls into the game more. Have Kennedy play his way. Just do those couple things, and I think the Blues will be better for it. They're still in eighth, by the way. Two performers for the Lions that I want to highlight at midfield and half forward. The stats, well, we lean into the stats with this because they were both pretty monstrous performances. This was Josh Dunkley's best game as a Lion, and it wasn't just accumulating stats, but he had a lot of them. 33 disposals, 13 tackles, 11 marks, 
555 meters. What was the other stat that gave him a quadruple double? He also earned a prestigious award, the Mitch Robinson medal. Yes, right. But he had a quadruple double. It was because he had 14 contested possessions. We have, we've had 18 triple doubles this season, which obviously, you know, doesn't count kicks, handballs, disposals. This is the first quadruple double. The other is Jared Berry, who had his most complete game yet, his most visible game with 29 disposals and 9 marks. Berry would not be a depth piece at a lot of clubs, but he is here. Hugh McCluggage had 27 disposals. Oscar McInerney, good off of that immediate contest, had 19 fewer hitouts than Mark Pitnett, but 16 disposals, 14 contested possessions, and 10 clearances. Whereas Pitnett often leaves the clearance work to someone else because he gets the hits to advantage, McInerney is able to create clearances probably better than any other rug in the competition. You can make a case for someone like Tim English, but I think McInerney puts up the totals most consistently. I think it's hard to compare English and McInerney because one of them does more elsewhere on the ground, and that's where he creates some of those other ones too. But McInerney's a very solid player. He is not a big galoot. He is more than that. Adam Chera, not woof. A goal, 33 disposals, 7 clearances, 7 tackles. Lake Acres, 29 disposals, 8 marks, 501 meters gained. A clear answer to a lot of the concerns Carlton had last year in terms of aggression and presence on the wing, but they couldn't create enough off of that. Sam Doherty, a goal because it's his 150th game. Not just a goal, I believe it was the first Carlton goal. Yep, barely 3 minutes in, or at least 3 minutes o'clock time in. 3 minutes time off. He had 29 disposals and 7 tackles. Sam Walsh, 28 disposals, including 19 contested possessions, 9 clearances, and 8 tackles. George Hewitt, 26 disposals. Adam Saad, woof, 23 disposals. Oliver Hollins had a couple kind of low awareness plays where he got chased down and stuff, but he managed a goal in 21 disposals. Mark Pittenett, 48 hitouts and 12 disposals. Jacob Wietering, 12 disposals, 10 intercepts. Interesting game where Pittnet would get the hitouts, but the Lions were able to even things up on clearances. And even if they didn't get clearances, they got turnovers, and that's that's where they did their work. Pittnet had 15 hitouts to advantage, by the way, so a little under his average, I think he's around 19. We talked about that entire game and barely mentioned Patrick Cripps or Lockie Neal, who you know, two of the three most recent Brownlow medalists, and I'd be surprised if either of them get a vote. So I guess if both coaches planned on taking the opposing team's top guy out. I think they largely did that. Neither of them even earned a coach's vote. Did Dunkley get 10? They agreed on the top two. Dunkley 10, Payne 8. Yeah, that's pretty fair. That'll be the three and the two on Brownlow night. Who do you think the one is? Is it Cameron or Chera? I don't know. It could even be Bailey. Or probably not McInerney. I don't know. I'd say Cameron or Chera. One other thing about coaches before we move on. It was nice to see Chris Fagan happy to see Mitch Robinson. I know... Robbo was not happy with kind of the way things ended at Brisbane. Maybe that was more miscommunication or how list management did stuff, but it was good to see him on good terms there. Ooh, I gotta talk a lot for this one. This is gonna be fun. Richmond 15-14-104, defeating West Coast 8-10-58. Look, your team is one of the bottom two on the ladder. You don't have to say that much, but they didn't embarrass themselves. Um, no, they didn't embarrass themselves. I mean... I'd say five goals to one in the fourth is a bit of embarrassment because there's a point at which a lot of players seem to be mailing it in. What happened against Carlton is an embarrassment. This was just, you're not a very good football team and you're missing a lot of guys to injuries. They were out of depth in the fourth quarter, but 
felt like the top players just weren't into it as much, and there's a reason they lost the quarter five goals to one. Was glad that Oscar Allen kept up his streak of multi-goal games to begin the season. He is actually one of only two players to have that now because Jack Payne snapped Charlie Curnow's streak, so it's Allen and Jeremy Cameron. Spoiler alert, West Coast had that faster pace that I wanted to see early, and they won the first quarter, 15-8. to I mean, I was happy with that. They were really focusing on forward handballs, got over the top a couple times. But also, before the middle of the first quarter, Jai Cully did his ACL. And that just sucks. He's already had a couple other injuries. Late bloomer, midseason draft success, out of contract. He'll, I hope he stays on with the Eagles, but someone will sign him and be happy to have him. It sounded before this game like he was trending toward re-signing, but... Now I think it's, you know, more imperative for him to get it done because it's a lot tougher to test the open waters when only one of your ACLs is intact. Geelong wouldn't say no. Just anyone from outside, you know, the heart of Melbourne, I just immediately think, oh, Geelong can get him. Also, the hair. Do I need to sing it again like I did last year? Guys with dreads. If if your voice was more, like, with it, I'd say, yeah, you gotta do, like, the whole thing, but you got the point across. That's really what, what needed to be done. I think that was actually a title of an episode last year, Guys with Dreads. I believe it was. Because I think Myers had a big game and Cully had just gotten drafted. Richmond took the lead off a Shea Bolton snap in the middle of the second quarter and didn't give it up. But the game remained competitive until Dion Prestia kicked a hat trick. And that's a natural hat trick for American fans because really when Australians talk about hat tricks, I assume it's, I assume it's like a cricket bowling hat trick where you get three successive wickets on three bowls. For Presti to score three goals was both really satisfying for, for someone who has been a big fan of Presti's play style and also surprising because I just don't think of him as a guy that scores multiple goals. It was actually just his second career three-goal game. He had also had one back in 2018 against St. Kilda. There isn't really much else here. Um, you know, even without Cully, the Eagles were able to retain the ball in the forward half a bit better in the first half. The pace of this game was really inconsistent, and I bet it was a difficult watch for anyone other than Tigers fans. I know of a more difficult watch we'll get to later. Oh, yeah, I, I'm i glad that I wasn't focusing on that game. Yeah, I wasn't focusing on this one, and maybe I should have what I noticed. So every time I looked up, Tim Tarento was doing something, and it seemed like Shea Bolton, just, just looking at the raw numbers, had a monster game. Most complete game that I've seen from Bolton this year. You know, everybody knows that he can kick amazing goals and leap like it's nobody else's business, but the score involvement and assist type stuff from him, being able to set up, being able to set up both short and tall targets, I think that's a part of his game that just doesn't get enough press. Bolton, three goals, two behinds, 31 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 13 score involvements, eight marks, seven clearances. Tim Torino, 2-1, Think of him as not a very good goal kicker and a very good everything else. So for him to get two, no matter how they got, that's kind of just a bonus. I was really frustrated with the Eagles giving up that goal to Toronto at the end of the second quarter. Richmond had held the 450 for a while, and then Prestia went over the top to Toronto right at the end of the half. That's just an inexcusable goal to give up between giving him that much space and that being the reason that he got a two-goal deficit at the half instead of one. I thought it was going to be, you know, one of those where Richmond really pulls away. They, you know, ended up winning the second quarter 30-14, to 14, but I thought it was going to be another really bad Eagles second quarter instead of just 
Again, it was Presti's hat trick that put this game out of reach. Jacob Hoffer, a goal behind 32 disposals, 18 contested possessions, 10 clearances, 644 meters gained. They have great games out of both Toronto and Hoffer. It's like, that's why we gave up the first round pick. Even if it ends up being a high pick, you can't be upset about that. You can be upset if they don't get a fly or two out of it. Dustin Martin, a goal in a behind off 27 disposals. You mentioned Presti's three goals. He also had 23 disposals and 13 score involvements. Liam Baker, 22 disposals, 10 intercepts. Jaden Short, 18 disposals, 9 tackles. And Nick Vlostone, 17 disposals, 9 intercepts. Pronounce that one again? Vlosto. Vlostone. Very good. I think that, is that the toughest name to say in the AFL? Woi Woden. Do they? Do they? It's not that hard. Not intuitive, though. I think Woi Woden or like, I'm sure there's something else I just can't think of right now. I'll think of it later. Some people probably struggle with Kolajashny, and probably just because of the number of syllables. And that one, at least you just sounded out. You sound out the entire thing. I'll, I'll have to think about it. Some There's probably some, like, Irish name that's, like, way harder than O'Shee. I don't think so. Dara isn't that hard. I'll think of something. Richmond were plus 22 inside 50, 65 to 43. But the Eagles were the more efficient team inside 50 in terms of disposals. Richmond were just under 51% and West Coast above 58. That's usually a stat that parallels the result of the game. And so that's that's a weird one. It did parallel that they scored 58 points. I guess that's that's something. The Eagles also were plus 8 in clearances despite being minus 21 in hitouts. So I feel like it's pretty tough to be beaten that badly in hitouts. When you're facing a team with, you know, it was like Soldo and then he got hurt. And Samson Ryan, who, I mean, I like Samson Ryan, but his hitouts were predictable. In this game, he liked tapping to one side in particular. And I think Connor West read one of those taps for a goal. And Ryan seemed to get the message from that and start varying things. So that's a good example of him learning on the fly, which he's needed to do being thrust into a main ruck role. So that's positive. It does seem like you've had fewer negative things to say about Bailey J. Williams, who did get a goal. Yeah, he's working his way into things a lot more. Individual stat lines for the Eagles. Jermaine Jones, career-high 30 disposals and 9 intercepts. Um, I'm glad he's in my defensive line for my bunga-jumping fantasy team. No, my team does not include Shannon Hearn. I just really like his nickname. Two of the best nicknames in the league are in the West with Bunga and Daga. Although, Snooze Bedford, that's, that's good. Only learned about that one watching the the behind-the-scenes Sydney Derby video. I was entertained. Tim Kelly, 29 disposals, 19 contested possessions, and 9 clearances. Gene Short lined up against him, but it wasn't, you know, a super hard tag. Dom Sheed, welcome back. Also 29 and 9 clearances. Sheed's return and the Eagles looking more respectable. At the same time, not a coincidence, even though this probably isn't a great Richmond team. Liam Duggan, 27 disposals, 9 marks, 642 meters. He's another player that I think would get a lot more recognition for being pretty consistent if he were playing for an Eastern team. Alex Witherden, 20 disposals, 9 intercepts, and his stat line wasn't notable, but Xavier O'Neal's behind got Ethan really, really pissed. I did not, I don't bet a lot on these games, but I had the Eagles covering 41 and a half, and that, that fucked me. He was my neighbor, and he violated me. Geelong, 14-14-98, defeating Adelaide 11-6-72. This was the much more entertaining game in that window, and probably a frustrating watch for Tatters most of the way. No, not really. I actually was 
other than like the first quarter, I was generally satisfied. Like, yeah, things got hairy down the stretch. I thought Cats were lucky to be ahead after a quarter, then should have been up by more at halftime, and they led 56 to 40, led 72 48 after three. Actually, the largest lead, I think, was there was a 26 point lead in the second at one point. Crows got down to 84 72 with five minutes left, but Ollie Henry put the game out of reach. I'm just happy with this one because it's the first time in this five game win streak that the Cats have met both a good and informed team. Because look, Sydney rolled over, Essendon didn't have it. Athlete put up a good fight. I think you can leave this game, like, if you're the Crows, with, I'm sure, some frustration. I know a lot of Crows fans were saying that Ben Keyes got held after Jed Buse made what might have been a game-saving play against him. There's an argument at the same time for Keyes to be paying for holding the ball. Yeah, that's what I thought. We yeah, the Crows went in the challenge. They were physical. They were tough. Ultimately, I'm not surprised that their defense wasn't a match for Geelong, as much as I did like Nick Murray's play before he got concussed. What I liked about this game especially is that this was really a team win. Like, I don't know who the hell you give votes to for Brownlow. Let's see coaches votes. I, I think Max Holmes probably. Yeah, Holmes definitely. Good score. Holmes had to have gotten the 10. Oh no, he only got five. Guess who got the 10? Colo? Asavo Radagalea. I mean, I get it. No other midfielder really shown as much. I'm impressed. I, I would have thought it would have been Rory Laird didn't get any votes. I thought he played, I thought he made himself effective. But the thing that impressed me the most about this game was how even without Deconing and Jack Henry, the Cats held a good offensive team to 72. What surprised me is that, is like, who they really shut down and who they didn't. If you had told me, like, which guys can you not let operate, I would have said, you gotta stop Peddler because he feeds everyone and you gotta find a way to slow rank it. And instead, those two are the ones who did the most damage. Taylor Walker ended up with three goals, but really was not all that impactful. Rankin ended up kicking 2-1. Peddler ended up with a couple of assists and two goals, but the defense did a really nice job. I said mid-third quarter, Buse has been invisible. He really needs to lift, and then he made maybe the biggest play of the game. It was 84-72. Cole Jashney, who had had a really nice game to that point, had a bad turnover. Rankin... Made Mitch Duncan look like an old man. Totally outran him. Bounced a couple times. Then Radagalea, one of his only blunders of the day, he drops his intercept. Ben Key should have a goal, and then Jed Buse comes in at the last moment to save the day, and they end up getting the ball out with no harm done. Tanner Brun, who Rudy Edsall noted, had a monster fourth quarter, sent it into the forward 50. Jordan butt Swift and Ollie Henry scored on the run to really put it away. Caps ended up finishing with the final 14 points of this game. Both teams had significant injuries with the Murray concussion and Patrick Dangerfield with a, it seems to be a minor hamstring injury. He's out in the short term. Maybe that could be as little as, you know, Jeremy Cameron at the end of the home and away season last year. Probably more than that, especially considering he's older. But guys did a nice job in his absence. And I think the depth of this team really showed up. The depth is going to need to show up again next week with him out, with Brian Close suspended for a tackle of Jordan Dawson. I think it's worth an appeal. I don't think it gets overturned. No dangerous tackle suspension has even been lowered this year, so good fucking luck. I was thinking about Cole Jasty though, because this was the first game in my peripheral viewing of this one while I was watching the Eagles disappoint, where I really saw a good play all around again from both Cole Jasty and Buse, who were so vital in defense during the finals run last year. Max Holmes is just locked in. He's so fast. 
And Sam Simpson fits just unbelievably well with the offense altogether. Also, Tom Atkins was the one guy who was quiet last week. He was not quiet in this game. I'm surprised he didn't get any coaches votes. I liked his performance especially. It was like a captain-type performance from a player that you had wanted to be the captain. And I think he still could be one someday. And I think with Dangerfield out, you're going to need more of that gritty-type stuff. Also, a couple of players cost Brian any assists, but he got his first goal of the year finally. Fitting that as we were talking, Brian pushed his favorite mouse underneath the door. The Brian goal made it 42-22 to 22 in the second, and I, I heard you reacting from two floors away. It was really funny. I know the Crows did finish the second quarter decently well. They got it down to nine, and then fortunately Cameron got the goal to reopen the lead to 16. Just before that is where Murray got hurt, and you know Murray is definitely one of the more physical defenders for the Crows. We're still, they're not quite there defensively. They got a couple of decent movers, and I like Max Michelaney as kind of that guy who can get some higher intercepts and then emerge out of the out of the back fifty, moving the ball. The big thing that I noticed about Michelaney is that, like you were saying about a lot of the best defenders of the league, they might not put up huge stats, but they're limiters. They limit their opponents to low numbers. He's a quality player, and you did a good job identifying him as such. I wasn't alone. Anyway, really good team win. At what point did you rule the Crows out of this game? I thought second quarter they were going to get buried, and then they immediately rattled off the next three goals. I, and then I really couldn't write him off. I, you know, at 84-60, after a dumb Rory Laird foul to give Max Holmes a goal, I felt really good, and then they scored 25 seconds later, and again a minute after that. Really wasn't until the Henry goal with 2.54 left that you could really breathe. So you thought that they had a chance much longer than Kelly Underwood did? Yeah, it was like the inverse of BT a couple weeks ago. You know, the pies are still a chance. It was like, look, I get that like you want to create some intrigue and keep the viewers around. But I think like the realistic level is somewhere in between the two of them, you know, where it's like, you know, there's a point where you can say like all right a lot has to go right for them to be able to come back they basically have to get every clearance but she made it sound more impossible than it was and it would have been a very tall task but it wasn't totally out of reach it's a kind of win they've needed and it's gonna be even more and it's even more important on a short week heading into friday night against richmond which should prove to be a high intensity contest the crows I know there's a ways to go, and you can only rule a couple teams out of really being in the hunt, but the Crows have the physicality of a finals team. That's the staggering difference between them and Essendon. Other than Strayer, Essendon did not have guys that could body up. Adelaide did. There's some tough motherfuckers. I think Rory Sloan being back in has benefited them a lot in that physical respect. He's definitely added that going through the middle. Looking again at the stretch the Crows are on, so they had Collingwood last week, Geelong this week, they host St. Kilda next, then they play the Bulldogs in Ballarat, then host the Lions, go to the Suns, they host the Eagles before the bye, but after that they have the rematch with Collingwood at the G. This is a type of performance that even in defeat still makes me think a lot of positives about Adelaide. It's like, not a top four team necessarily, but a team that can get anywhere between like 6 and 11. Look, right now, 8 points separate 8th place from 15. Crows currently sit in 10th, 2 points out of the 8. I think it was hard to rule anyone other than, like, the bottom 3 out. The bo- Yeah, I mean, I 
think it would be really hard for GWS to get in, but theoretically, they're in position. All right, Geelong stats. Tom Stewart, 24 disposals, 9 intercepts, and 8 marks. Ben Keyes being dedicated to tagging him didn't seem to do all that much. Max Holmes, a goal, 22 disposals, 8 tackles. Isaac Smith, a goal, 2 behinds, 21 disposals. Mitch Duncan, 20 disposals. Tom Atkins, a goal, 17 disposals, 12 contestant possessions. Former steeplechaser Mark Blitzobs, a goal, 16 disposals, 12 contestant possessions, and 10 hitouts. I thought Riley O'Brien played a pretty good game all around the ground for... And for Saglar to actually be competent to kind of run in there with it was nice. And then, obviously, Blitzovs did his part as well. Jaron Cameron, 3-2 off 15 disposals. Jake Kolajashny, 15 disposals and 11 marks. Tom Hawkins, 1-2 on 14 goals and 10 score involvements. There was one late after the Henry goal where Hawkins didn't feed an open Henry for another and he ended up missing for a behind. But it put the lead out to four kicks anyway. Not that, not that it was really... Arrest him. Two minutes left. Asavarada Golea, who really glad he got the recognition he deserved. Stepping up in a contest like this, 13 disposals and eight marks. Team stats, Crows were slightly more efficient, 76 to 70.7. Didn't really stand out to me, but Geelong 54.7% inside 50 efficiency to Adelaide's 43.5. And I think that's just a testament to the Cavs defense. And it seemed like the only time the Crows were efficient were inside 50 were like, when Luke Pedler was doing it. And yeah, I'm just surprised that Pedler, who's kind of one of the main nodes in their scheme, wasn't a guy that they really clamped down on. I thought, like, if I'm game planning for them, I feel like that's a guy you really got to stop. And instead, they were a little bit loose on him and really tied on everyone else. And I guess, you know, that's why, that's why they're coaching and I'm sitting here. Cats were also plus nine in stoppage clearances, 34 to 25. That's kind of a common theme with this team just about every week. Yeah, when when you have Mark Blitzovs being able to help with that anywhere on the ground and Tom Hawkins taking the forward 50 hitouts, that should be a trademark of this team. And it was. Jordan Dawson led the Crows with 29 disposals. Brody Smith had 24 and he had 599 meters. Rory Laird had 21, 14 tackles and six clearances. Isaac Reichen had 21 and kicked 2-1. Very amateur numerology if you want to get into it. Like, nothing like that Anzac Day game numerology we saw on Bounce, which is still insane. Jake Saligo at 20 disposals. And noted big galoot Riley O'Brien, a goal from 38 hitouts and 15 disposals. He actually got one. It was it was a nice setup, too. So he it was kind of like a like an NHL play where, like, a forward in the circle sets up a defenseman waiting in the slot for a big slap shot. It was Rochelle setting up. That was about all you heard of Josh Rochelle. Also, Riley Philthorpe was very quiet. Um, for Radigalea's performance on Taylor Walker, does that mean Asaba's sex is on fire, or does that mean that Taylor's sex has been extinguished? You're, you're, you're just kind of looking at me like, but you're the, you're the music guy. You're supposed to have the answers for these things. I mean, I I get it, but like, didn't think we'd get any more Kings of Leon references now that nobody can absolutely throttle Leon Cameron's Giants anymore. One other thing before we move on, Mitch Nevitt's looking good. I'm pleasantly surprised that he's looking this mature on an AFL oval this quickly. How many games has this been for him, Ethan? Not many, but it's like, right now when you're missing a bunch of guys to shorter-term injuries, you know, you were down Gary Rowan for this game, you were down Cam Guthrie, like, someone's got to step up and maybe not be the hero, but just be competent, be an adult in the room, and 
Mitch Nevitt, who's barely an adult, he's 20. Okay, he's been an adult for a bit, but he sure doesn't look like one. He's, he looks like a tall, young person. He kicked his first goal in this one, and it was a big one. It was like not only a spot where the team really needed one after the Crows had gotten it down to 12. It was the first calf goal of the second half. Like for it to come from not just Jeremy Cameron putting the team on his back or something like I put a team on my fucking back, though. I think that's actually more impactful in a way. When you and when you when you get a play like that, you know, a clutch goal from a guy who's not usually a big scorer, it's like that's a winning play. You you feel like you're gonna win a game after something like that happens, which is really good. Five, by the way. The answer is five. And it's only his third game actually named in the twenty two. Gold Coast 13-785, defeated by Melbourne 13-12-90. I said in the preview that the Suns lifted round two when they were hosting Melbourne last year, and I was kind of expecting them to be able to do it again. I must say I did not expect a one-goal margin. When I had this on in the background, and the Ds got out to a 20-2 lead, I thought, all right, this is probably going to be a snooze test. They're going to hit him in the mouth early, and then... The Suns were really with them the whole way other than that. They got down 20 mid-second quarter, and other than that, it was pretty much within two goals, like, the entire rest of the way. Yeah, it got out to three goals after Max Gaughan was given a downfield for an incident completely off the ball. I forget who it involved. Might have been Casbolt? But that made it a 14-point game with just under 12 minutes remaining on the clock, but it didn't get out any further. It was shortly after that Gaughan goal that Jacob Van Royen tried to spoil and got Charlie Ballard in the head. Ballard had probably not been in great condition to begin with. He, I think he'd gotten a, a knee or a foot on the ground before halftime, and then he required a stretcher after that failed spoil attempt. Van Royen was offered a two-game suspension for that. I'm surprised that it wasn't a straight-to-the-tribunal matter where it could be argued down. I thought they were a little bit sloppy, but he was going for the ball. There was no bad intent to it. It's the combination of high impact and high contact that are the reason for it being a second game. This is a case where outcome does factor in more than intent in the others. All sorts of arguments about how much taking your eye off the ball means. It's like, I get that that's something you want to get out of the game, but I mean, if he hits the ball and then hits him in the face, it's fine. I'm questioning whether this is correct, but I doubt it's going to be changed. So have fun this week, David Zeta. Noah Anderson was a monster in this game. 10 coaches votes again this week, 28 in the past three. That's the most for any one of the three-week span this year. Yeah, Nick Day constantly at 27 between rounds four and six. Chump. Anderson scored after Malcolm Roses wasn't paid a mark. That made it a nine-point game with 9-10 left. Mal Roses' four goals made me really happy in this one. I had wanted him to round back into form before he went home with the team, and they had their two games at Darwin. I'm hoping he's able to lift up there again. By the way, it's nuts to me that Joel Jeffrey is playing in the fucking VFL. They're undefeated in the VFL, I believe. I mean, do you want me to read off the list of guys who played for them in the VFL? Their full team was pretty much AFL caliber players. Yeah, maybe not great players, but like, guys you sure wouldn't mind having in there. Like, these past couple weeks, you know, since Tuke Miller got hurt, maybe really look at the Suns list more closely, look at what they were doing in the reserves and realize they've actually got some good things going in terms of recruiting and development. Let's see. I mean, Caleb Graham barely did anything, but like you've got short list here. Hawago Oya, Alex Sexton, Ned Moyle, Mac Andrew, Chris Purchase, Jeremy Sharp, Joel Jeffrey, Jai Farrer, 
that's a not great AFL team, but like I would take the Suns VFL squad. Like I would take their chances against the current Eagles and North, maybe Hawthorne. They'd won at least two of those games. Like if you just played Gold Coast's current VFL squad over the course of a full season, I think they'd get you like five, six wins. I was thinking four or five. Yeah. Um, Rosas ended up getting the next goal after that crumb from Anderson. That made it a four point game. And we didn't see any more goals in the final six minutes, 34 seconds of clock time, which was really surprising given a couple chances that Bailey Fritch had. RIP Bailey Fritch's streak. 35 consecutive games played with a goal. No longer. May its memory be a blessing. ZL. That's an abbreviation that comes from a Hebrew expression, which means exactly what I just said. May their memory be a blessing. It's kind of the original press F to pay respects. So Fritch had a couple chances, and he brought it out to a one-goal margin with just under three minutes left. And then for some people, the umpiring came into focus again. It had been inconsistent throughout this game. I didn't think, honestly, that it was as bad as it had been in the Geelong-Adelaide game on rewatch. I'd say Adelaide got the benefit of about 60% of the calls, but it was just like, you never knew when they were going to call holding the ball or just everyone was going to stand around expecting a whistle and they never blew it. And it was just like, where's the consistency here? Also, the... Crows defenders could get away with like an arm chop on every marking contest with a long forward, which is weird. You know, the one thing that I've been realizing lately is umpires are rotated between who they're doing games with every week. Will we see greater consistency if we had full-fledged umpiring like you see in American football? Baseball does umpiring crews, but that's a totally different deal. I think I, I think for the NFL, I think that's the most important comparison because, you know, it's guys working together on different spots on the field. Yeah, I'd really like to see that, actually. More consistency with, I think you keep the same umpires together. Like, you don't have to keep the same goal judges together. Just send David Roden wherever he'll smile the most. So whenever Richmond and Porter playing, probably. No, just send him to any game where there are a lot of goals so we can see him more. Ideally, like a Fox footy broadcast, because, you know, seven, they give a little inset box. But yeah, umpiring was not great. You had Trent Rivers holding David Swallow big time at the edge of the 50. No call. I doubt Swallow would have been able to carry the distance from there, but the Suns were making good connections throughout the night. Also, you know what Terry Collins would say? You gotta give us a shot! That was well before that uh, French miss. This was probably with about five minutes left. But then this was a blatant one, like, I don't care who you're a fan of, that's that's just an objectively bad call. The last questionable non-call, though, is, you know, just questionable. Bobby Orchol was edged out by Max Gone in a marking contest. There was a bit of a sell. There was a bit of contact that could be seen as illegal. In a game that was umpired pretty loosely, I don't necessarily mind it. But the more I watched that one, the more I wasn't bothered by it. Like, I thought it wasn't huge front-on contact or anything, or like an obvious push. I thought Chol actually kind of sold it more than anything. That that was one that looked more like it in real time, but then you slow it down, it's like, okay, that's just one of those tough calls where someone's going to be upset. So Chol didn't end up getting a shot, but he ended up kicking laterally to Darcy McPherson. Now, McPherson had been playing a more refined game over these past few rounds, but he's not going to carry this distance and, and kick a goal. And... No, he didn't. You were really excited about the prospect of a draw. Yeah, and unfortunately, for the first time this week, unfortunately, you knew McPherson was a very low chance to hit that. He's, he's been playing better. 
he still has some zero awareness moments, but like he's playing with a competent player and that's good. But yeah, he missed with 14 seconds left. And then Jack Viney had one last intercept to seal it. Here's something great about this game. The expected score favored the Suns. If you if you factor in the rushed behinds, the expected score, 78.9 to 78.7. So like we were so close to having that sweet, sweet song that Brian Barra showed me for the Barrickville Singers. It's such an unlikely outcome, and yet it's one that I really want, like, all the time. Didn't happen. Will it happen again this year? I mean, we're the average is probably around one or two a year, and we've had one. I think we can get, get another, maybe even two more. I don't think we're going to see another uh, two draws in a row like we saw from the Giants a few years back, because that hadn't happened in, I think, 96 years when that happened in 2017. This is Melbourne's 11th straight win over the Suns. Gotta be, gotta be frustrating for Gold Coast. But, like, overall, I'm not drinking the Capri Sun. I still think, I just don't see that many wins for them. But they're looking more and more competent, and we're kind of right where we were last year, where it's like, is Stewart do the guy? And I'm, once again, left with more questions than answers. But, like, I know your big takeaway from this game was a lot of praise for the Suns midfield for how they played even without Tuke Miller. Another active game from Anderson, as I mentioned, with how busy he was. Matt Rowell as well, but this is where you saw more of the depth. Brayton Fiorini really getting a chance to be a main part of the action. Rory Atkins being that mover from the defensive wing again. It's players that I had spotted as being important for the Suns' depth. And, I mean, my analysis has been good. My observations about this game were a little bit shorter since, again, the Geelong game kind of bled into this one. But Christian Petraka is one of those rare characters who can both run through the midfield and is a really good kick. Like, he can play forward, but he's able to play in a position where he really controls the game top to bottom. Also, I think Trent Rivers is probably the weakest player in this D's lineup. And I say that not as a knockoff Trent Rivers, but as a compliment to this team's depth. Because it's like, I can only think of two other teams where that would maybe be the case maybe three geelong and collingwood maybe brisbane actually brisbane probably has other weaker defenders right now but if trent rivers is like the 14th best player on your team that's a good thing and instead he's like maybe the 23rd of who was healthy and he might actually be lower than that if you look at all the other um players that they still have playing in the vfl for example ben brown has gotten back into form so he'll probably be the in for Van Royen. Charlie's Fargo played VFL. The depth for both of these sides is pretty amazing. And you think about them very differently because of their ladder positions, but that's one thing that they have in common, along with loaded midfields. Melbourne stats, Clayton Oliver with 28 disposals, nine score involvements. Christian Petraka kicked 1-1 from 26. He had eight clearances and 527 meters. Angus Rayshaw with 24 disposals, just quietly going about his business this year. Want to get Lockie Huntersman, 23 disposals and seven clearances. Jack Viney with 21 disposals, seven tackles at that last intercept mark just inside the defensive 50. I don't think you realize how long Viney's been going at it. Jake Bowie with a rare goal. That was surprising, and it came out of nowhere. I remember that play. It came right after Kazi Pickett tackled Will Powell. It was just like, oh, who's there? That's Bowie? Whoa. How many goals is that for him? Uh, I don't know, like four? Pulling up his tables here. God damn it, Ethan. Who do you think you are eyeing up? 
Max Gone kicked 2-1 from 17 hitouts and 15 disposals. Brody Grundy still doing heavy work in the ruck and just glad they had two guys to match up with Jared Wicks. Tom Sparrow had 1-1 from 15 disposals and 7 tackles, but the team stats look like this should have been a Gold Coast win, honestly. Plus 22 in tackles, 66-44, which makes sense with Matt Rousing the way there, and the Suns with a more efficient team inside 50, 53.3% to 42.6, yet it was the Ds that squandered more kicks to goal and seemed to have better control of the ball a lot of the time. I don't know, maybe just my belief in disposal efficiency inside 50 be really telling stats just going down we mentioned noah anderson absolutely balling a goal 37 disposals 10 clearances darcy mcpherson 30 disposals will powell 25 disposals 11 intercepts 11 marks david swallow 25 disposals 14 contested possessions brayden fiorini 24 disposals i can see why collingwood wanted him last year rory atkins a behind 22 disposals 637 meters matt rowell only six tackles? I love that you can say that. Only 18 disposals, but 13 contested possessions and 11 clearances. And also a bit of grass eaten before the game. Now, I think that was a week early. I think he does it every week. I think it's some superstitious thing. Is this like Novak Djokovic eating the Wimbledon grass? I don't know. I mean, you see, like, players walk around the field barefoot a few hours before games. That's become, like, more and more common in sports all over the world. Does that make it more disgusting that you're eating it? I guess when it was happening... Admittedly, he was wearing shoes, but that's even worse. I don't know, it's, it's weird. Charlie Ballard, before he got hurt, 16 disposals, 11 marks, 9 intercepts. He's been that guy for them in defense, and we both spotted it before this season. Vindal and Koshis, 1 goal, 3 behinds, 15 disposals, 529 meters. Were any of those 3 behinds, like, particularly bad or memorable misses? I don't think so, I think they were just long... And yeah, Vinda is the name that Ethan's come up with, with for Jack Lacocious. Can you remind us why that is again? Well, for one, it just kind of fits because Vindaloo and also because he's kind of like Indian food, similar to Ryan Tika Masala Gardner in that he's either really good or really bad with very little in between. As a reminder, you can find us on Twitter and on YouTube at Americans Footy, getting more active with posting stuff on YouTube in between these episodes. You can find me personally on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. I am on Twitter at Castle Media. Ryan Harambe is running around being ridiculous. He is on Instagram at CatNamedGrian. Is he trying to get underneath your pile of scorebooks? I'm not sure what he's doing. He, he might be. Any funny background noise you hear is usually him doing something. How many scorebooks you have piled up there? Close to 40. You're approaching Matt Rowell's sharing count territory. Is Matt Rowell eating grass his next step to becoming a Sharon himself? I liked, we had one Twitter response, like someone asking about him eating Sharon's. Oh, he's totally trying to get underneath the scorebooks. GWS 10-11-71, defeated by Western Bulldogs 13-8-86. The Giants have now lost nine games in a row in Canberra. This was mostly Benjamin's game, but I'll give my take on it first before he does his thing. Um, I was happy to see Arthur Jones score another two goals. His second and third in the AFL, he scored both of those in the first quarter. Which one of us was celebrating more? I don't know, but he's on the list of guys that are like, even if he scores against your team, you're happy. Like him, Walla, a couple others. Who else would be on that list for you? It's tough because he's a defender, but maybe Hawago or maybe Mac Andrew? Andrew is actually yet to score, just like you, Ethan. I mean, yeah, I haven't played in the AFL. Boo. But... 
This looked like tight game early. Giants closed the gap, going into halftime, getting it down to 12. Marcus Bottompelli had 10 clearances in the first half. He's the only player to do that this year, and he's now done it twice. And then third quarter, it looked like the dogs were really going to pull away. They got up 71 to 37. It was 72 to 39 after three. And then all of a sudden, the Giants make things really, really interesting, getting as close to within eight with 838 to go. Tom Green with a couple quick goals. The fan club was up and about for those. Harry Hillberg with the one that put it within 10. But it was Aaron Nunn who stood up at the end of the game and had two crucial marks in wet conditions. Like, in regular conditions, there are marks that I guess you'd expect a lot of players to take. But to stick them in the rain, in clutch situations, really stood out to me. And that he ended up being the player, other than Bottom Pelly, who I really thought about in most of the Bulldogs in terms of this game. I mean, it wasn't, like, that rainy, was it? You could tell it was disruptive. It wasn't astronauting in the ocean. No, this wasn't Cairns footy. This was Canberra footy. I would, you missed the music reference. No, I didn't. I just wanted to move on from it. You, you know the guy who made that song is Australian. Yes, sir. Okay, good, good. Just, just wanted to make sure. Anyway, yeah, not and put it away. Jesse Hogan got a late goal, but wait, Jesse Hogan kicked a goal? Uh, two of them, actually. Wow. He didn't have any really bad misses, did he? No, but the Giants hit the post three times in the third quarter, and lo and behold, lost by 15. Ouch. Still considering their season and where they are, this is not a bad loss. They've not really been humiliated in any game. The Giants' biggest loss this season is by 21 points to Brisbane. I mean, they definitely could have lost that game by a bit more, but they haven't had a game where they've just gotten run over, unlike... Hawthorne, West Coast, North Melbourne. Heck, the Suns have gotten a run over. The Bombers have gotten a run over. No, they, they've been respectable just about every time out. And, you know, you talk about building a culture, building an identity, and stuff like that helps. That culture, the Giants, that's what it's all about. It seemed to me that the Giants actually got taken out of the game by the rain. They didn't keep pace for the second and third quarters. And meanwhile, the Bulldogs were much more willing to work at ground level. And Bonapelli being so clean despite those conditions meant that they created opportunities a lot more easily. It's almost unfair how clean Bonapelli is in the rain. He was not all that big in his 200th career game. And number 201, he was. Yeah, to the tune of 1-1, 32 disposals, 26 contested possessions. That's... That's an astronomical number. 14 clearances, 7 tackles, and 560 meters gained. It's like, what did he not do for this one other than actually seal the game himself? Uh, to borrow a quote from a local basketball coach, he did everything but sell hot dogs and sweep the floor after. Tim English was also a really strong mark in the wet. And Matt Flynn has not been great. I can see why, even though he does dumb, oafish stuff regularly, Braden Proust is missed. And... English just kind of did everything in this game. 40 hitouts, 23 disposals, 10 marks, 6 tackles. Like, Ruckman don't mark like that. That is not a part of, of their games. It was a part of his game. Tim English is not your everyday AFL Ruck. I think we're going to start seeing more players like him or clubs trying to shape more players to be like him. It's, it's hard to do. You know, there's the mix of his build and skill set is very unique, and I'm glad it's being noticed and celebrated this year. That weird sound was the cat hitting the, like, a stopper on the door, signaling he wants out. 
He's an amazing communicator. Bailey Smith, 32 disposals. Tom Libertore, 1-1 on 29 disposals and 8 clearances. Jack McRae, 29 disposals. Ed Richards, 21 disposals and 7 marks. Caleb Daniel, 20 disposals and 8 marks. Jason Johannesson continuing his strong play with a goal, 18 disposals and 8 marks. Aaron Naughton kicked 3-2, and the Dogs overcame 15 more turnovers. I think that in part was just a sign of the amount of possessions they had, especially in those middle quarters, as I was mentioning earlier. Johannesson's return to good form has been one of the best trends about the Bulldogs game this year, because, again, we're always asking, you know, where's the depth going to be? And Johannesson is certainly one we consider to be a depth player, even though he's got a Norm Smith medal to his name. Important for the Bulldogs to get this win, considering the next five they've got coming up. Blues this coming Saturday night. The Crows in Ballarat next Saturday afternoon, looking to avenge that loss from last year where they couldn't kick into the wind. The Suns in Darwin, the Cats, and then hosting Port. And they struggled with a number of those clubs last year. Tom Green gave a memorable performance for his fan club, kicking 3-1 from 38 disposals, 10 score involvements, 9 tackles, 8 clearances, and gaining 634 meters. Green versus Bonapelli was a matchup from the opening bounds, and it was a really great seesaw battle when it was drier. Speaking of Green, Toby was laid out with an ankle injury, and we didn't even mention that to this point, which I think reflects positively on the Giants, that they were able to make that not be like a dominant storyline. I mean, I would think some of those 15 points they didn't get by hitting the post, he probably helped. And that's what the commentators were saying in the studio after the game, talking about, you know, where Toby Green would have helped the most. I don't know if it would have been enough to win them this game. I know that it's a question, at least, like, could the Giants have won without Toby Green? Where would the Suns have been against Melbourne with Tuke Miller in? The expected score had the Giants by a single point. I... I still think of the deserve to win a meter. This one probably still leans towards the dogs pretty heavily. I'd say at least 70 30. I, I meant to also ask where the Melbourne Gold Coast game would fit on that. I, I still lean Melbourne on that one. I, maybe not as much, maybe more like, I don't know, 65 35. I was thinking 60 40, because you'd expect Bailey Fritch to hit some of those shots. Go through the other giant stats Josh Kelly had 34 disposals, Lockie Whitfield 31 and 10 marks. Nick Haynes, 29 at 12 marks and 10 intercepts. Very active performance from a lot of these backline players for the Giants. And, you know, they were still moving pretty quickly. Haynes did a nice job intercepting, but not having Taylor makes it pretty hard to body up to a guy like Naughton. Haynes can't quite do it. Connor Iden can't quite do it, even though he had 10 marks and 11 intercepts from 28 disposals. Lockie Ash also with 28. He's not just a tagger. Steven Canelio kicked two behinds from 26 disposals. Finn Callahan, rising star nominee last week, he had 24 this round. Jesse Hogan kicked 2-3 from 17 disposals and 9 marks. His kicks were not where the game was lost, even though we're pretty critical of the volume of shots he gets a lot of the time with his inconsistency. He's still got the ability to put up bags, and you just don't know when that ability will be there. There were people discussing on Twitter, like, how many goals constitutes a bag, and the consensus seems to be, like, five or more. I agree. So he did have a bag this round, but not in the Frio Hawthorne game. Goal score was reasonably spread out there. Fremantle 18-9-117, defeating Hawthorne 7-6-48. It was only 33-20 after a quarter, but then a 
31 to 13 second term and a 26 to 2 third quarter put this one out of reach. It, it's a it's a lot of what we see from Hawthorne. They can hang with a team for the first quarter with a lot of energy, but their lack of experience starts to show pretty quickly. Think back to what they did last year and bring up that time where they start to get fatigued from somewhere in the third to somewhere in the second. This was just also one of their lesser performances compared to some of the games they've played lately. They this was the worst they had played since the trip to Sydney. Sam Frost was Sam Frost. It was like the most Sam Frost game ever where he had 10 intercepts, but also just like gave away free kick after free kick. And at one point came up a 50 for a super late push on Jayam. It's like, no, he didn't push him hard, but it's like you had to walk over to him and then push him. Where it's like, you really just didn't need to do that. James Sicily also gave away one for arguing a, but looked to me like a pretty textbook push in the back. I mean, it wasn't like a huge push, but his arms were pretty well extended. Um, this was was a good game for Frio. I'm surprised they did it more kicking than handballing, but they attacked the corridor. Almost like it worked last year. And you know, it's not a super complex game plan. Yes, some teams will be better at playing to that style than others, but they got the speed to overrun most clubs. What impressed me was that they were able to do that against a team that has Jai Newcomb in the middle because Newcomb's physical, tough in contests, tough with clearances, and they didn't really let him dominate the middle of the ground like you'd expect him to as a, you know, a really physical player. Andrew Brayshaw really shown in the midfield, whether he was more inside or outside. He tends to be that more in the guts guy. He ended up with 34 disposals, had eight tackles, took nine marks and scored two goals straight. Don't think of him as that great of a goal kicker, but was accurate then. His second month of the season has been much better than his first. I know the numbers don't exactly reflect it with only 11 disposals, but I really liked Sean Darcy throughout this game. Like his kicking ability, he's a surprisingly accurate kick and can set guys up in the forward 50. He's more than a big body, which is pretty, uh, which is what we really thought of him, I think, in 2020 and 21 in particular. Thinking about it, I get why Frio would have been a little tentative to try to get into a super physical game through the middle against, say, the Crows, but against most teams, this is how they need to play. They need to just, you know, take people on and doesn't afraid of anything. A lot of different guys got involved. Jai Amos, 3-1. Michael Frederick, 3 straight. Uh, Josh Tracy proved he belonged to there. Yeah, for a team that's got a bunch of small forwards to have a bigger physical presence. I really liked him. I know he ended up getting subbed off, but I thought he was really solid. Subbed off for Nat Fife, by the way. Somebody had to make way for him, and Fife scored. And just, like, the crowd reaction, Fife coming in, that was cool. That was, like, you know, I've noticed... They have smart crowds at trio games, like when Matthew Johnson came in for the first time a few weeks ago, got Western Ovation, Western Derby, right? Whenever he was sub. believe it would make made his debut in the Derby. Whenever it was, like, the fans took note, which was cool, and yeah, oh, also this was the Starlight Purple Haze game where, let's see, uh, Jai Amos, like, had, like, his collar ripped intentionally, and I think it made it look better. Also, they just looked like they, like, the fairly odd parents wand on the front of the jumpers, whereas last year, like, they actually looked good. These were just garish. These were kind of silly, but I like that they had some of the Starlight kids in the middle of the circle for the song afterward. That was cool. They usually get these kids involved pretty well, and they tend to play really well for this game in particular. Touching on Tracy, you know, Frio have been missing that really physical, tall forward since Matt Tabiner has declined, and... It's been by committee in the tall department other than Amos, who is 6'5", by the way. 
he doesn't really look that tall. It's just he's not as, like, bulky, whereas Tracy is, like, just a big dude. Tracy's 6'4", 207 pounds, so 193 centimeters, 94 kilos. Tracy is just 20, was the seventh pick of the 2021 rookie draft. They've been going for a few different options there. Josh Corbett got a couple chances. Are we going to need to see a Josh fight for that forward spot? I think it should probably be Tracy's. I mean, go with the hot hand or hands or feet. All depends on what you're into. Luke Ryan, 27 disposals and nine marks. Jager O'Meara, 26 disposals. There didn't really seem to be any sort of hostility between like O'Meara versus his former team, Lloyd Meek versus his former team. And he wasn't like Meek wasn't getting booed at all, which I think is good because this was like a case of just he doesn't really have much of a spot and he's searching for a better opportunity as a player. So I, I wouldn't hold that against him, especially when you have a better player in Darcy and Luke Jackson. Yeah, this was Luke Jackson's best game. 2-1 on 24 disposals, 16 contested possessions, and 7 tackles. I think they might have had a breakthrough on how to utilize him. They let him do more forward work instead of just be also a Ruckman. He was playing more freely. That center, half, that center half spot makes sense for him. I understand that some teams like Geelong and Melbourne have made it work to have two talls at center bounces, but starting Jackson board seems to be the right move. Hayden Young, 26 disposals, 8 marks, 587 meters. Caleb Sarong, a behind, 24 disposals, 528 meters. That constitutes a quiet game for Sarong. James Ace, who I had like not noticed at all this year, a behind in 23 disposals. I think he's been like among the underperforming defenders that didn't so much underperform in this game, but like it's been an issue. That's something that going to watch for him in that Sydney game. The only time you'd really take a note of Aish before that was when Josh Duckley marked over him. Nathan O'Driscoll, one of the best young wings in the competition. You heard it here first. 20 disposals. Interesting that, like I said, Frio ended up kicking more. They had 242 kicks and 148 handballs, whereas the Hawks had 191 kicks and 183 handballs. Efficiency inside 50 for this game was a stat to follow. It finished 63-39.5. to It was worse than that. Uh, with 12 minutes left in the second quarter, it was 70.631.6. And yeah, Hawthorne just, look, they knew they were going to have games like this. This was one of those. It's probably not a coincidence that it came with Luke Bruce and Chankwath Jaff both managed. So who was more active for Hawthorne of this one? Will Day a goal from 26 disposals and 7 clearances. Connor Nash with 26 as well, eight clearances and eight tackles. He's been getting more and more involved lately. And I think just like physically, he's a difficult matchup because he's a big dude who's pretty versatile. Limited Bontempelli decently in, in Bont's 200 a week ago. Carl Amon behind from 25 disposals at 28 meters. Brian Myers' friend James Warple with 25. Harry Morrison, 24 and 8 marks. Blake Hardwick, 23 and 10 marks. James Sicily, 21 disposals. And Jai Newcomb had a goal from 20. That constitutes a quiet game for Jai. And yeah, I'm surprised that they were able to out-muscle him as much as they did in the midfield, but they had the numbers for it, is what I noticed. The question now, and I'll probably get into this more in our round nine preview, is even though it was against a crap team, did the Dockers have a breakthrough? I think the next couple weeks, we will find out. They're at Sydney next, then they host Geelong, then they're at the D's before the bye. I think they're starting to play the right way. I just really hope round 10, they play like shit. They've done that at home against the Cats a couple times, and I hope that keeps up. Well, they had 
one of their best victories of the year last year in Geelong. So maybe the Cats can return the favor. The last couple times they've played at Optus, it's been ugly. Also, in addition to his three goals, Michael Frederick did a nice job just like creating chaos and using his speed and kind of representing what Frio needs to do. Michael Frederick being Michael Frederick shouldn't be surprising. Maybe Justin Longmere listens to Americans watching the footy. Would love to have him on. One of those rare figures that's respected a lot in both Western clubs because of his work on the Eagles coaching staff during their flag run. Port Adelaide 12-20-92, defeating Essendon 13-9-87. Here is the start of the theme for Sunday. It started from that first game, from just a little after Never Tear Us Apart was played. Inaccuracy in front of goal. It was kind of all day Sunday, but after a quarter, 3-4-22 to 6-1-37, Port ended up with 10 more scoring shots than the Bombers and one by five. Halftime, 5-11-41 to 9-1-55. End of the third quarter, 9-16-70 to 11-3-69. Nice. Vinyl, 12-20-92 to 13-9-87. It's going to be frustrating for Essendon to go kick 2-6 in the final quarter after it's your opponents that have been kicking poorly all day. That's just, that's just unfortunate. But I had said, even before Jordan Ridley got hurt, that I thought Essendon's defense just wasn't going to be able to match up physically with guys like Charlie Dixon and Todd Marshall, and that unless something went catastrophically wrong, Port would win this game. And it nearly went catastrophically wrong, but they managed to get through it. It was not pretty, but they got the win they needed. Also, it was another of those awesome visuals of, you know, crowd rising right at the final siren when if you just, you know, had the clock right there and everyone could see it, and they would have just been standing and clapping for, like, the final 10 seconds. So, like, that's one of the cool things about not everyone having the clock. Like, I know it leads to some chaos at times, but I enjoy it for things like that. So yeah, Essendon opened 6-1 in the first quarter. Three of those goals were from setter clearances when it's tough to even average one a game for a team. And then two of those were from Port Defenders leaving their one-on-ones to enter packs. Miles Bergman did it once, one of a rare error that we've seen from him in recent times, and Tom Jonas did as well. So Port had a clear way to get back on more even terms in this hyphen fest. Oh yeah, we had a record of this game, Ethan. Five hyphenated names. You got, in alphabetical order, Darcy Byrne-Jones, Jason Horn-Francis, Sam Powell-Pepper, and Brandon Zerk-Thatcher, who kept his pants about him. He also has two fathers. Tom Hawkins was his dad last week. This week, it's Charlie Dixon. He's just, like, he's a good defender, but for him to be thrown into a matchup like that, where he's got a matchup against him, the difficulty is, you know, he's not big enough to be directly playing on him, so he's got to enter contests later. He's just, he's badly miscast in that spot, and it really does him a disservice, just there's nobody else to take that role. Essendon don't have that one key defender that can really physically match up while also having strong enough hands. Even if you've got Jaden Laverde and Jordan Ridley, that's still not there. Like, an Allure Allure would be so good for them, or like, uh, even though Allure, you know, Dermot Branson actually had rare good insight in this game, where I think he knew who most of the people were. Yeah, that's uh, that's surprising, especially for one of them being a non-Victorian team. But he's very right about Alir being strongest against stationary assignments rather than more mobile types. That's where like Alir could struggle against like Tom Hawkins, who's so good at 
coming from the back of the forward 50 to the front of Archibald. I'm going to do something now, kind of take a page out of the Solid Verbal book. Solid Verbal, a college football podcast that we really enjoy, where they kind of read drive charts. I'm going to read the scoring summary from this game, just so you get you can get an idea of how it's kind of like a, a dramatic reading. Essendon goal. Essendon goal. Port Adelaide goal. Essendon goal. Port Adelaide goal. Essendon goal. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide goal. Essendon behind. Essendon goal. Essendon goal. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. End of first quarter. Essendon goal. Port Adelaide goal. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. Essendon goal. Port Adelaide goal. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. Essendon goal. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. End of second quarter. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide goal. Essendon goal. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide goal. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide goal. Port Adelaide goal. Essendon behind. Essendon goal. Essendon behind. End of third quarter. Essendon goal. Essendon behind. Port Adelaide goal. Essendon behind. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide goal. Port Adelaide goal. Essendon behind. Essendon goal. Essendon behind. Port Adelaide behind. Port Adelaide behind. Essendon behind. Essendon behind. End of game. Like, also, let's note that a bunch of the actual goals in this game were kicked very early. So, like, after the first quarter, the kicking got a lot worse. After the first, the Bombers were 7-8 and the Power were 9-16. Hey, that was also their score at three-quarter time. Huh. And Port, by the way, had 50% more forward half time in the third quarter. And they kicked 4-5 out of it, but so many times in this game where, where they left points on the board. The question is, how much Essendon could have actually taken advantage of Port's more accurate kicking because of how strong Essendon was from center clearance. So there's a trade-off there. You know, you can't just say, you know, had they hit this shot, it would have been, you know, this clear change in the margin of victory or defeat. The game, unfortunately, did turn when Jordan Ridley got hurt. Ridley took Junior Rioli's arm to his head, ended up being concussed from that, and Junior's been sent straight to the tribunal. Haven't seen a great angle of it still, and I think that's the big difficulty in judging it, but it was 60 meters away from play. From the angle I watched, or like the angle it was provided... It just, which was like from behind the goalposts on that end, it just looked like he was just trying to run past him and unfortunately bumped him. Or it was like, I don't think there was any intent to it. I think it was just careless, at least from that angle. You seem to be the minority in that regard. Yeah, I, I'd like to see it from a closer angle or like at least one at, at field level. I imagine we'll see some better angles of it as that tribunal case happens. I assume that we'll see, we'll get some gifts posted from. Maybe David Zita, maybe Tom Brown. It's funny because I was going to say it's been it's been nice how like Rioli for the most part has just been, you know, he's been a solid small forward. He hasn't done anything that's really made him the center of attention. He's just had a chance to play football because, you know, for many reasons over the last few years and he's been in a lot of headlines and it was nice for him to just kind of like just play football. But he may not be playing football the next couple weeks, three, maybe if not longer. I'd like to see a better angle. Maybe I'll see a different angle and feel totally different about it. Do we need to see another angle of getting his first forced holding the ball of the year? 
I forgot how fun it was to watch him run dudes down. It's coming to get you. And he was the one who scored when Tom Jonas left his assignment in the first quarter. It was actually Junior Rioli that, that Walla got holding the ball early in the second. Between his injuries and age and everything, Jonas uh, got subbed off in this game. It sounded like they were concerned about maybe soreness in his chest area. I don't think he's going to be the captain for that much longer. It's going to be Ellie Wides next year with Darcy Byrne-Jones as the vice captain. They are the other members of the leadership team right now. So Tom Jonas, uh, go back to wearing number 42. Does the Port Adelaide captain always wear number one? Tradition going back to before their AFL days, I believe. That's that's not the case with most teams, so I think that's pretty neat. So Essendon had the lead for a lot in this game. Port went in front with 525 left in the third after a Dixon mark on Zerk Thatcher. Mason Redmond won a nice ground ball to get Archie Perkins to score on the run to put Essendon back in front by five early in the fourth, and then Perkins had one of his more active games of the year as well. He's been in and out of the spotlight, hasn't really had a couple consecutive games that really make me think about his performance, but this was one of them. Jeremy Finlayson scored off an Andrew McGrath turnover because apparently the TH doesn't exist in his name. That tied it. Sam Draper juked Ryan Burton. was like, oh shit, are we going to get an insane goal? And it hit the post. As soon as I saw him break out, I was wondering if he was going to get another car. It's, it's funny on a team that's not very physical. Like, he's one of the ones who can really lay it down. There was a long review to see if Riley Bonner hit the behind post on the kick. It was inconclusive. I thought it didn't touch it. So that tied it up. Port went up 90-77 to 77 with goals by Rosie and Rioli. Rioli really blew past Kyle Langford, who had moved back to defense after Wrigley had gone down. And as much as I like Langford offensively, I think the Bombers have enough offensive talent that they can... It, it might be prudent for them to put Langford back, kind of like kind of like a Harry Himmelberg-type role, except I'd probably give him more defensive time. Just, he's bigger, stronger, he's and faster, too. And they just, you could tell he was not in the spot that he was used to, but I think, give it some time, he could really thrive in that role. And also, noting that uh, Connor Rosie goal, that came off of a Willem Drew intercept mark. Drew follows the ball really well all over the field and has kept up his good form really for the first two months of the season. After Jake Strayer got a goal with seven minutes left, after Ben Hobbs, speaking of not dead, Ben got a downfield free, was back to six points, and it was a behind fest from there. Langford had a chance to tie it, missed left from the left side with 5.33 left. 3.37 left, Rioli misses with a right snap. Then he intercepts Zerk Thatcher's kick out, has a chance to put up a clean two-goal lead. He misses, kicks another behind. Still a big point to get in that situation. Yeah, but then Kyle Langford snapped from 44. That came up short, and Ryan Burton ended up doing a good job kind of ushering it through. The 2.20 left, the lead is six. Sam Draper managed to set up a nice kick to Andrew Phillips, but Phillips had to go from 54, and instead of trying to send it into a crowd... Think it was the right move to go for the shot? I mean, Phillips is a strong enough, big enough dude that's like, yeah, I'll take my chances with him there, but it came up short. Todd Marshall punched it through. Phillips is a player that I really took note of in the fourth quarter, but not before that. He's had a few good quarters this year, but hasn't strung together that four-quarter game. And had he put together four good quarters of this one, he would have won. Phillips had a chance to create some havoc late, but Zerk Thatcher had held Charlie Dixon. Dixon was kind of in between the two of them. It was the right call, and 
Dixon was able to just kick it backwards to, I didn't even write down what she made because it wasn't relevant, but that let him bleed out the rest of the clock. Uh, what is relevant is that Francis Evans is now not and out. I'm telling you, the dude wins. He came on as the sub. I did not notice him much from a performance standpoint, but when he got in, they were down by three. They took the lead shortly after, and they ended up winning. The one play that I also want to touch on from this sequence that we didn't talk about was a rush behind by Alira Lear. He got back at the last moment to push through a Jai Caldwell kick with little over eight minutes left. That was a phenomenal effort because the goal square was like wide open. It's reminiscent of like Ty Canelli taking the kick to safety in the 05 grand final. This ended up only cutting lead from 13 down to 12, and it would have been a huge sliding door moment. You know, it would have been what Vinny the Gooch would call a momentum shifter. In a five-point game, you can really say that. And Anthony Hudson was quick to to get on this statistic. That was the 14th time Alir had saved a goal this year. He's averaging nearly two saves a game, which seems unbelievable, like very hard to fathom A, having that many chances, and B, coming through on them that regularly. But you look at some of those plays that he makes, and you can understand why Ford have closed out three wins by seven points or fewer. They also have another that they won by 14. So is this regression? Because last year, there were two and seven in games that had a margin of 12 points or fewer, and they were really strong in 2021 in close games. The thing is, if we're going by expected score, they should have won this game by more than 40. Again, asterisk with that, because of that's a strong play all-center clearance, I still think they would have won this game by three-plus goals if if they had done that. And I, I don't know if Essendon would have been that great off center clearances because, I mean, I mean, first quarter was evidence in and of itself, right? I don't know if that would have kept up all game. I feel like eventually Ollie Wines would have been able to put a body on someone, but Zach Butters could do that as well. That's a situation where I would have been more keen on bringing Travis Boak back into the center square instead of having him play on the wing. It looked like Butters had really fucked up his knee at one point, and he ended up staying in and he was just fine so that was he's had a lot of lower leg injuries a lot of a couple of knee problems so that was a nice relief yeah big time relief for the power butters ended up with 28 disposals and gained 615 meters connor rosiad had his goal from 29 just a right place goal where he read that missed mark from charlie dixon after drew got the intercept dan houston had 25 disposals and gained 635 meters I don't know what it's going to take for more people to start noticing him regularly. Playing for a Victorian team. One second. Well, he is a former Oakley Charger, but he's under contract through 2027. Nice report that he's already locked up for that long. Dylan Williams also really positive in that back six. He and Houston have played well, sometimes on opposite sides. Didn't notice Trent McKenzie a ton in this game. I really liked him the week before, but Williams made up for that. 24 disposals, 8 intercepts, and 8 marks. The aforementioned Willem Drew with 22 disposals and 8 tackles. Travis Boak kicked 1-1 from 21 disposals. Ollie Wines also had 21, didn't kick any, but he has a very rectangular head. Riley Bonner and Jason Thorne Francis both had 20 disposals. Bonner I noticed more at half forward in the later part of the game, which is not the role that I've come to expect from him. He was one of their really questionable defenders for a lot of last year. I enjoyed how Thorne Francis played. He just... He's getting to that point where it's like, you see that something that's hard to quantify that's there with him that isn't there with most players, not just of his age, but of any age. Jane Saquasson, Horn Francis. 
Miles Bergman may have hurt himself a little bit near the end, but had 15 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 7 marks. Jeremy Finlayson was visible, but kicked 1-4. Junior Rioli kicked 2-3. Just frustrating day in front of goal, and to win despite that was really good, and so there are positives to be taken from that. Court were plus 15 on inside 50s, minus 22 on hitouts, but even in clearances. Stronger at stoppages, where they were able to get more numbers to their advantage compared to the 6-6-6 at the center. You know, because they won, you can frame it as Fenleason had a good game aside from kicking. If they lose, it's Fenleason cost us this game. Essendon turned it over 12 more times. That ended up pretty significant. I know Bomber fan and podcaster Todd Davey was pretty critical of how their small forwards played. I think having Walla in there means it's tougher for the others to get some more opportunities. Alan Davey Jr. was not really noticeable in this one, unfortunately. He he may need some more time in the VFL before he's like fully ready to go. Uh, contested marks unsurprisingly favored Port Adelaide 22 to 7. Just this Essendon team just doesn't have a lot of big, bulky, muscular dudes. They've got good Rockman for that, but really like Kyle Langford and Jake Stringer are the only ones that you look at as, you know, like just dudes that are super ripped and maybe. I mean, this is their way of showing, like, we're not doing anything with steroids. We're just going to have, like, a bunch of scrawny little dudes. <laughs> but, you know, you kind of need some strength to be able to win games. One percenters favoring Port 50-36, to 36, which doesn't quite fit with how I saw this game. I saw, I mean, thought of Essendon doing a lot to scrap their way back into it. So that's, that's a little surprising. Darcy Parrish, who would look pretty damn good in hoops. 37 disposals, 22 contested possessions, and 9 clearances. Zach Merritt, a goal behind, 28 disposals, 11 score involvements, 10 tackles, 500 meters. Oh wait, that's that's an octopus. I didn't even write it down as such. I just wrote 10 tackles. I'm sorry. Mason Redman, 21 disposals. Kyle Langford, 2 goals behind, 19 disposals, 10 marks. And Andrew McGrath, 19 disposals, 500 meters. Does he say it like McGrath or McGrath? Because he was born outside of Toronto in Mississauga. That is, it should definitely be McGrath on McGrath. Also, even though I didn't mention his numbers, like seeing Sam Wiedemann getting to play every week and not look over his shoulder when he has a crappy performance and worry about getting omitted, I think it's just really allowed him to be in a better spot. You know, some guys, the competition really helps them where, you know, they're motivated and it's like, I can't show the fuck up this week or else I lose my spot. Or some guys like, I just want to be able to be in a consistent role. And he seems to be one of those. Before we go on to the next game, I just want to say, if my voice sounds way better to y'all, it's because I've had at least three liters of water since this episode has started. It's not some, you know, really funny thing like Tom Segura and Kool-Aid. That's 101 fluid ounces in non-communist measurement. It's a one liter bottle. That's what I'm going off. It's a 33.814 fluid ounce bottle. You want to use imperial units for America. I stand for the cross and kneel for the flag. In that order. Raise Dale. Raise Dale, praise hell. On that note, calling it 11-11-77, defeating Sydney 6-12-48. Earlier in the season, I would have hyped up this game a lot more, but it lost a bit of its luster with the Swans having the outs they did. And then the Swans just... Couldn't kick straight? Didn't stop people from showing up, though. No, the attendance was over 71,000. That's what the fifth largest or fourth largest all-time for a game involving a non-Victorian club? 
something around that. Uh, the biggest was 2017 closing round between Richmond and Brisbane. That had nearly 77,000. Had the Swans been in better form, I think you could have seen that record broken. Had the South Melbourne fan base shown up more. Um, even before this game, Nick DeCoss and Ryan Clark were getting in it. Just a bit of banter. Clark has been the tagger for Sydney a number of times, and I expected it would be him to go to Dacos. He did, and the two of them were the center of attention in the early going because Clark kicked the first Swans goal. Players came together after that. Tom Pavley gave away a free kick to steal side bottom, so there was no bounce afterward. Nothing resulted from that, but Nick Dacos assisted on the next goal, and now Collingwood started getting at Clark. My disappointment is we didn't have the Braden Maynard-Tom Papley fight that we deserved. Honestly, the score review after the next goal, Brody Majacek's first of a career-high five, probably brought things down to a simmer and kept it there for most of the rest of the game. Had you not had that review to slow things down, I'm not sure if that intensity would have gone away as easily. The Swans were playing the way they normally do, you know, getting numbers in defense and trying to kick themselves through all the way. But they were having some trouble keeping those numbers in defense with how quickly Collingwood moved. Sydney did end up kicking the last five goals before halftime. Finally got a few goals in a row. The mix got involved. Hayden McLean and Logan McDonald. McLean is one that I expect still to be dropped when Tom Hickey makes his way back in. Was a little surprised that didn't happen this week, maybe next. I would probably just put Hickey in for Laddams. Well, Laddams, we thought, was hurt pretty badly right off the opening bounce because he was holding his left arm, but was able to come back in. And then got his ass kicked by Billy Frampton. And Mason Cox at times. Welcome back, Mason. Came straight in. Played the whole game. That was not the expectation at first. No. Uh, Craig McRae had mentioned in the pregame interview after the team had run out that they were going to assess him at halftime and go from there. But keeping that tall was the right way to go because even when he isn't on the ball as much, even when he isn't getting shots, Mason takes really clean marks all over the ground. Funny, on the uh, 60 Minutes clips, you saw like a bunch of times where he would just like completely whiff on one from early in his career. He hasn't really been like that in the past, I don't know, maybe four and a half years. And Collingwood's structure was much clearer with Mason present in general. A really high-pressure third quarter in which we only had two goals, both to Collingwood. So the Pies led by five entering the last, and then ran them over. And it was a real team performance. You know, there were a couple players with big numbers, but the flow of the game involved a lot of different pieces. Jack Ginnivan got involved once he came on. He was subbed in for Bobby Hill, which is like-for-like like in terms of ability, but definitely not in terms of attitude. I mean, for like, but maybe not such as for such as. Ooh, good reference. Ginnivan as a sub just makes sense for a team that closes games really well. Have that sort of spark plug be able to come on with fresh legs is pretty ideal. And yes, there is a caveat to be saying that it was a real team performance. You know, possessions were spread out. But uh, as I mentioned at the top of the discussion of this game, Brody Majacek, five goals, including number four, which could very well be goal of the year. It is goal of the year at this point. I'm not sure how much the fans have a say in goal of the year, if it's entirely fan based, but Collingwood fans will make it goal of the year if they can. What I love about really these last few weeks, each of the last three rounds, we've had a goal that's like, that's goal of the year. We had Charlie Cameron with the deflection of Jack Gunston's centering kick. Will Ashcroft with the inside of the boot Jackie Chan on the boundary. And now we have Mayacek tangled with Nick Blakey. Swans fans were arguing that Mayacek should have been called for a hold. 
I don't care if he should have been called for a hold, because if you can do this, you should be able to get away with, like, a felony. I mean, soccering over your head? You expect that with a round ball, not a Sharon. This is three weeks now in a row. Like, I think we have our three nominees. If we don't, I think Charlie's going to be the one to miss out. If we don't, I'd love to see what could edge out any of these three. If anyone does something to knock any of these off the podium, say Bolton, it would be awesome if someone did. That would be that would be really cool if that happens. You have discussions about goals and marks getting snubbed. We're going to have a real snub talk this year. Like It's going to be as legitimate as we've seen in our four years watching this game. My big concern going out of this one on the Swans is, you know, they had a lot of possessions out of it, plus 77 in the disposal account, and they were more efficient all over the ground, 75% disposal efficiency all over the ground, and 45.5 inside 50 isn't stellar, but it was above Collingwood. The opportunities were there, but they have not played strong fourth quarters for a few weeks now. I don't know how much of that is running out of gas. I thought the last couple minutes they looked pretty demoralized and out of it. I don't know if that was the case the whole time, but I think now that they've dropped three in a row, like, yeah, they should have won the GWS game probably. Let's let's admit that. Although they did put themselves in a hole and could have been in a bigger hole to begin with in that game because, you know, no Sam Taylor kind of helped them. But I have to wonder... Did getting their asses kicked in Geelong, like, bring back some painful memories? You know, you have a whole off-season to improve on it, accept it, get over it, and then to go into Geelong and, like, that was never a game they were meant to win. But to absolutely get their asses handed to them like that by the same team, that, that might have really set them back mentally. Because the kicks bring back all the memories of everything we've been through. Do you get it? Unfortunately, I get it. Yeah, <laughs> Maroon 5 are not what they used to be. They're fine, it's just their first album was their best. End of discussion. Interesting that the top, like, seven guys by ranking points in this game were Swans, but Collingwood, Scott Pendlery, 31 disposals. Nick Dacos, 25. That's a quiet game for him. Josh Dacos, two behind 23 disposals. Taylor Adams, a behind 22 disposals. I thought Isaac Quainer was one of the best players all night. 22 disposals and nine marks. Not surprised that it was Quainer and Moore who who helped cut off a lot of the Swans' kicks into the forward third. Majacek and Pendlery each got nine coaches' votes, by the way. And then Darcy Moore had three, Quainer had two. Speaking of Darcy Moore, he had a behind 20 disposals and another 11 intercepts. John Noble and Steele Sidebottom each had 21 disposals. And Jack Crisp, two behinds, 20 disposals, 13 contested possessions. And Brody Majacek, like we said, kicked 5-1. First five-goal game of his career after 12 four-goal performances. That's a story in and of itself. And it sounded like some of the players were always joking with him about it. Um, Joke's on them now. Sorry, Pat Lipinski. Yeah, those big number of games for the Swans. I mean, if you had been fantasy, you're welcome. <laughs> Help me win. I won fantasy games on both sides of the ocean this week. Is that a first? I believe it is. So a good week for both drafting on the Dunny and ass in the jackpot. Ass in the jackpot. Wait, we referenced that in this episode. Uh, from an old uh, incident in which the former New York Mets manager, Terry Collins, was ejected. Errol Golden, a behind 37 disposals, 13 marks, 7 clearances, and 658 meters. Luke Parker with 34 disposals. Callum Mills, 31. Ollie Florence with 29 and 11 marks. Chad Warner, 28. Nick Lakey, Robbie Fox, and Jake Lloyd all with 24. 
Foxhall's with nine intercepts, Justin McInerney, 23, and Hayden McLean a goal from 19. Honestly, now that I think about it, the disposal and mark margins also just make it look like there was more uncontested ball that the Swans were playing in. Makes sense. Collingwood don't like wasting time. They're willing to get into contests. They want to make teams have to play at a numbers disadvantage everywhere on the ground, and they've got the youth to do it. And the older players like Pendlebury and Sidebottom can keep up as well. If St. Kilda and North Melbourne had been the first game I had ever watched, you would have never watched footy again. No, I, I would have because I would have been fascinated by, you know, the throw-ins and the bounce. And I mean, you would rarely get a goal single, but, you know, the goal umpire waving flags. But uh, North Melbourne, 4-10-34, defeated by St. Kilda, 8-16-64. This game gets another dramatic reading. North Melbourne behind, St. Kilda behind, North Melbourne behind, North Melbourne behind, St. Kilda behind, St. Kilda behind, St. Kilda goal, St. Kilda behind, St. Kilda behind, St. Kilda behind, North Melbourne behind, end of first quarter, North Melbourne behind, St. Kilda behind, North Melbourne behind, St. Kilda behind, St. Kilda behind, St. Kilda goal, St. Kilda goal, North Melbourne behind, end of second quarter. St. Kilda behind, North Melbourne goal, St. Kilda behind, North Melbourne goal, St. Kilda behind, St. Kilda goal, St. Kilda goal, St. Kilda behind, North Melbourne goal, St. Kilda behind, St. Kilda goal, St. Kilda behind, end of third quarter, North Melbourne goal, North Melbourne behind, North Melbourne behind, St. Kilda goal, St. Kilda goal, North Melbourne behind, St. Kilda behind, end of game. This was the first goalless first half for North Melbourne. And remember, North has had some really bad teams, especially in recent years. Since round 12 in what season? 1987. 79. And they weren't bad at the 70s, is the thing. They got their first goal with 1709 left in the third. After a quarter, it was North 044 to St. Kilda 1612. At halftime, it was 077 to 3927 and after 3 was 3725 to 61551 it wasn't just that nobody could finish this was just a boring game the teams combined for almost twice as many uncont- uncontested possessions as they did contested 490 to 264 we're like, look, Ross Lyon's a good defensive coach but the Saints have benefited from some dog shit kicking by their opponents and just, like, sucking the life out of you and making games boring. But I think the way you gotta counter that is just try to make things interesting and contest everything and create some havoc, because they've had some guys that haven't made great decisions under pressure. Uh, that said, the Saints did play 29 more tackles. Uh, this was a really quick game because there weren't many goals. Because there just wasn't a lot of action, the teams combined to leave 28 of their interchanges on the bench. Is that a record for this year for teams that didn't end up down a man or multiple men in the case of Western Derby? I don't know, but this this was just not an exciting game. It was the third lowest scoring game ever played at Marvel. And the lowest, by the way, was, you know, with 16 minute quarters. So that hardly counts. How can you tell this game was fast? The on-demand video of it on Watch AFL is under two hours. It's 156.29. Yeah, this game was not very fun. I don't have much else to say about it. What a great Sunday nighter. Let's see. Naziah Wanganine Miller got involved defensively. Matthias Filippo, who was the rising star, played 
much higher than the other forwards, which was surprising. I thought of him as someone who would, you know, be kind of weaving around close to the goalposts. Also, his voice is way deeper than I expected, which makes him the anti-Toby Green. And Jack Zebel worked his ass off and got a lot of praise from the broadcast team for that. And yeah, there was there was no quitting North. It's just just this was not a fun game. All right, sap time. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know much to say on this one. I wasn't paying attention to it live for good reason. Hollywood and Sydney was my assignment. I paid more attention to Wordle when that became, you know, when that refreshed for the day. Also, Jai Simkin played with one glove. That was like one of the more interesting things that happened in this game. I mean, came back from that hand injury. Uh, the Saints had two goals in quick succession, like within 27 seconds of each other late in the second quarter. North did get it to 10 with 14.45 left in the third, and then Saints opened it back up to three goals, and that was basically it. Also, Matthias Filippo and Cooper Sharman each took really nice marks. More on that in a minute. Naziah Wagney Miller, a 28 disposals, 11 marks. Callum Wilkie, 28 disposals, 12 intercepts, 9 marks. Back to his normal Callum Wilkie self. Brad Hill, 26 disposals, 615 meters gained. Liam Stalker, 25 disposals, 16 marks. Ryan Burns, 24 disposals. Brad Crouch and Jack St. Clair, 23 each. Hunter Clark, 22. Jack Steele, who I think because he's been hurt and because he has so many teammates named Jack, we probably haven't given enough credit to, but just a really solid all-around midfielder. 20 disposals, 9 clearances, 7 tackles. Solid midfielder, just a good leader for the club as well. You don't really think of him being in that captain conversation, but his leadership this year has to be commended. Cooper Sharman, 1-2 on 18 disposals and 8 marks. Machido Pepper Owens, a goal, a behind, 16 disposals, 7 tackles. Uh, North Melbourne was actually more efficient overall, but a bit less efficient inside 50. It was a 75.1 to 70.5, and then inside 50, St. Kilda had the edge 45.8 to 41.5. So not only did teams kick poorly, they just weren't all that efficient inside 50. Uh, Todd Goldstein had his way with Rowan Marshall on actual hitouts, 41 to 18. But the Saints took clearances 32 to 26 and setter clearances 10 to 4. They were even elsewhere. Jack Zebel had 36 disposals and 18 marks. That's, I had to double check those numbers. Yeah, 18. Wow. This game had so many marks because you had the teams combined for 490 uncontested possessions. Yep. Harry Sheasel got to 30 again, 30 disposals and 488 meters. Liam Shields had 28 disposals and nine tackles. Luke Davies Uniac, 25 and 514 meters. Cam Zerhar got the ball a lot. Like a lot of people, he was inaccurate, kicked three behinds for 20 disposals. I actually really liked his performance other than the actual goal kicking. And Ben or Barry Mackay, 15 disposals, 10 intercepts, and 10 marks. Okay, we're done with this, aren't we? Yeah, um, it was nice, by the way, for Barry Mackay to be able to have a day off between his two games and for them to both be at Marvel. That, even though we lost both of them. All right. We just mentioned that Sharman and Filippo took big marks, and yeah, two Saints nominees for Mark of the Week. First off, our round seven winner of Mark of the Week was Josh Dunkley over James H. We both preferred Charlie Curnow over Shannon Hearn. Your round eight nominees are Jeremy Cameron in front of Ben Keyes. It was kind of a big leap from the side. There wasn't so much over him, but around him. You had Sharman over Shields. You had Filippo over Darcy Tucker and in front of Miller Bergman. I'm going Filippo here. I really like Cameron's from the side because Ben Key's kind of 
pushed off him a little bit, but I think Filippo's the best of them. These were the three nominees, by the way, for Mark of the Week on Bounce, and Filippo was the winner there. Which one of them uh, made the selection again? Uh, I think it was Bernie Vince. He just needs to learn how to, like, really hold, you know, like, do, like, the opera singer type stuff when you're, when he's doing the Golden Fist. You know, it's like, it's gotta be really drawn out that last big vowel. Yeah. Like, it's back. That's a tough one to get out there, too, because that's a long name. Shannon Hood. Bang. Actually, I would say Bung instead, like that. So, yeah, uh, Bernie Vincent's. You're doing a great job other than that. We had some history, actually, in that last round, the Lions became the first team to sweep the Mark and Goal nominations in consecutive weeks. It was Will Ashcroft's insane Jackie Chan from, from off the boundary that was the clubhouse leader for Goal of the Year. I think it may have been outdone. I thought for a while that Kate Chandler was going to be the pick for this week. He outran Will Powell to the ball and along the boundary. He shrugged off Sean Lemons and then snapped in front of Sam Collins. By the way, I had two number 37s in my fantasy team, Kate Chandler and Tom Barris, and they both scored 37 points. Interesting stuff. You had Xavier O'Halloran for the Giants, paddling the ball along the ground, then soccering from the wing into the forward 50. He kept running and got the ball back from Steven Canelio before kicking from 25, but Brody Majacek wins. Jordan Degoe's kick was just not long enough. It was just in front of the goal line, and... Majacek soccered it over his head while engaging with Nick Blakey. It was hard for us to find a main character for this round, so we're actually leaving it up to a Twitter poll, and then we will announce the winner in our round nine preview. I think I know what it's going to be, but let's leave it up to the people. I think, Ethan, you've got a real chance in this one. Inaccurate Sunday kicking, because on Sunday, teams combined to kick 54 goals and 78 behinds. That's an average of nine goals and 13 behinds per team. And I nominated my check for not only the goal of the year contender, but his first five goal game. Other than the goal of the year, I didn't think it was like this standout individual performance. Because like I don't think there were that many like insane individual performers this round. I mean, like I guess if I had to pick like player of the round, I mean probably Bontempelli. I think it would have to be Bontempelli. Yeah, he won that battle with Tom Green. Dunkley would get some consideration, but I think it's got to be Bond. Tom Green was damn good, though. And, yeah, that's, that's just about all. So, don't forget to find us on Twitter, at Americans Footy. We're on YouTube as well. Get to see the couple of shorts we've done. Get decent traction. You know, I know that they're a lot of work for Benjamin, so that's great to see. It's amazing how long it took to edit that last one, because I was syncing up a lot of the shots and putting in the captions myself. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01, by the way. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media and Brian Harambe, who has been making a bunch of noise, wants to be in the room and will be in the room as soon as we finish recording. He is on Instagram at CapNameGrian, and we will see you for the round nine preview. So, uh, Brian, come on in.